our gospel reading for this morning comes from uh, Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 20, beginning with verse 9 there. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he let it out to tenants, and he went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, All right, well, uh, good morning. It's always a a privilege, delight to be with you. We're in uh, the fifth Sunday now in Lent, sometimes called Passion Sunday. Naturally, I'm up here because I'm so passionate. Um. But this is the last Sunday before we enter what would usually be taken as to be the most holy week of the year, the year in which our Lord sets in course those, um, sets in motion uh, all, the, all the events that would take place, eventually leading to his suffering and death and then raising again to new life. Um, it's been a gift to be with you all here in this season. Uh, I am particularly bad at repenting, as I have found. Um, but one of the things about this season is, is that the church says that while we're all in these different places of faith, you and I are a little bit different in our places uh, along the way of following Christ, these seasons help bring us all together. Uh, just kind of like if we were going to run a race, right? And then there's something about that where it's like when you're doing it with other people, it makes it a lot easier. In this way, the church gives us the gift of the season so that we're all, even though we're in different places, doing this season uh, together here. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. Um, today, uh, today in the gospel passage that I just read, Jesus gives us the image of a vineyard. We actually had it. It's a very rich image. We had it a couple weeks ago. If you remember when I was up here with the fig tree, um, that had actually been in a vineyard. But this is a little bit different. It tells a parable. Uh, we know that this vineyard is uh, it's being tended by some tenants. The owner of this vineyard has gone. It just says... He's in a far country, so he's not involved at all in the day-to-day operations. And whatever it is, he's been gone for a long time. We don't know if it's days, if it's weeks, if it's months, if it's been years. Um, It seems as though part of the reason Jesus says this is that you should take it as though this owner's been gone so long, these tenants have de facto been acting as though they own this vineyard. So at some point, then, the owner does finally send a servant when the harvest would be ready to collect his share of the produce. This has been leased to them, and the agreement would be, right, that they would sort of work the land, they would get some of it, but some of it would go back to the owner. At that point, the tenants 
feel as though uh, they might be able to get away with usurping the owner's authority there, just claim the vineyard as their own, so they start beating uh, the servants that he sends multiple times until eventually, uh, and it's sort of puzzling, I know the definition, this would be the, the, <laughs> the definition of crazy, right, is to do the same thing again and again and hope for a different outcome. It almost appears borderline that the owner's doing this because they keep wounding the servants. He sends his son. The tenants seize the son. They kill him, and they throw him out of the vineyard. The owner then finally, now after all this time, seems to be, the text doesn't say, outraged, you could imagine though, and gets retribution. The tenants are destroyed. And at the very end, the owner sets the vineyard back in control of another group of tenants. Jesus ends this parable with two sayings. One is a quotation from the scripture there. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head cornerstone, and that this stone, if anybody falls on it, they'll be broken to pieces, and on whoever it falls, it will crush them. So really, really interesting parable. This morning in particular, as you all listen to it, I, I feel like it's uh, very beneficial to try to hear it the whole parable through the lens of Scripture, because this is exactly how Jesus' hearers would have heard this. Unsurprisingly, the prophet Isaiah figures very prominently in this parable and in the hearing of it. Um, many of you know, in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah tells the story of the kind of the, the, the tragedy of Israel's um, falling away from God, and then ultimately its destruction and its exile. Chapter 5 of Isaiah kind of does that a little bit in miniature. Sometimes it's called the song of the vineyard. Isaiah starts out, says, Let me sing a song for my beloved, a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. You'll all remember a couple weeks ago when I had, well, maybe you will, uh, I, I had an image that there's not a whole lot of extremely fertile soil up there and around Judea and Jerusalem because it's all just the rain that falls and then it falls through the mountainsides into the valleys. So if you have um, this very fertile hill, either, which it'll say there, you've dug it out, you can see there's like really painstaking work there, um, or you just happen to get in the right particular spot. So here is the love song continues for the vineyard, it says, uh, my beloved, he dug it out, right? So this is terraced now. He cleared it of all of its stones. He planted choice vines. He made a watchtower. And if you go to Mark and Matthew's version of Jesus telling the story, you actually hear all of this. And um, he hews out a wine vat in it. As the story continues in Isaiah 5 there, it says, I had expected this vineyard of which the owner is spared absolutely no expense. He's done everything that he could to prepare this vineyard to flourish, to thrive, to bear much fruit. It says instead of it yielding grapes, it yielded wild grapes, grapes that would not have been, they would have been worthless to the purposes of the owner. As you continue in the song, eventually you find out that the vineyard that this, the, like I said, Isaiah says, my beloved has here, is the vineyard of the Lord, which is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. And the fruit that the Lord had come looking for was justice, but behold, it says bloodshed. I had come looking for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This here, of course, itself harkens to, which is really appropriate if you think about it, Genesis 4. 
Cain, who was upset with the comparison that he was making between he and Abel and what he expected God to do, and God did something different, and then ultimately kills his brother, and there's a cry of his blood from the ground there. What we find is because this vineyard is not producing the fruit that the Lord had come expecting in it, now this vineyard will be destroyed, which is precisely the story that Isaiah is telling there in the beginning. This is judgment on Israel and Judah for not being the people that God had sought for them to be. If you back up just two chapters there from Isaiah 5 to Isaiah 3, on an oracle of judgment against Judah and Jerusalem, the Lord enters into, it says in 3.14, the Lord was going to enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. Why? Because they have devoured his vineyard, because the spoil of the poor is in their houses, because they crush the people and grind the faces of the poor. These moments here illuminate a little bit what Jesus is is doing here in his parable of the wicked tenants. Israel knows two things very importantly here in this grand sweep of the story. One, that God has, of course, created the whole world, right? And this is the focus, the locus of his salvation, ultimately. Of course, we can see as sin runs through it, God focuses even more, there's an intensification, so to speak, as God elects Israel to be the instrument of his deliverance, his salvation. And then, of course, correspondingly, it would become the Messiah himself, the one who would unite God and humanity back together. In a similar fashion, all sin has run rife through all of creation. But there is this way in which, even in the parable, it starts to indicate that there's a a likewise corresponding intensification amongst the leaders and the elders, those who have been put in positions of power and authority. Pastor Jeff has said from up here before that when the king of Israel goes bad, so often the people go bad. And so there's this recognition that somehow there is the battle that's being fought against sin is intensified when you go to the leaders of the people. Now, as you hear Jesus tell this parable, as I said, it wouldn't have been missed here as he says that there is a vineyard, that Israel, that Judah was reprising its role here as the vineyard. The tenants, of course, very obviously stand in for the religious leaders of Israel As it says, I believe, in Mark and Matthew, they realize Jesus has told this parable against them. But also, but also here, what wouldn't have been missed by all of Jesus' hearers is the foreign kingdoms that had ruled and reigned over Israel, uh, over Judah, um, throughout the centuries there. You'll remember that in Isaiah 45, God talks about Cyrus being his instrument. Or in Daniel, um, which we'll kind of show up here again, and Daniel talks about these four successive kingdoms that would reign over. All of them are seen as to be kind of, in a sense, tenants, people that God has granted authority to but don't rightfully own that over which they rule. And um, just like you have the tenants and the vineyard here, what people would have recognized, and Jesus says that the owner is sending his servants, if you go to Matthew 23, 23, Jesus will make this explicit, that the servants that God sends are themselves the prophets who have been abused and mistreated. Isaiah, of course, himself would have been one of those uh, very prophets. So, if you're here with the people that would have been listening to Jesus, you're caught up on the story, you're listening to Jesus, he's telling the parable of a vineyard with these wicked tenants who are over it, 
the owner who's been far away but is now sending his servants. And what you're expecting the Lord to do is to finally break free the vineyard from the tenants who have been reigning and ruling over it, bring once again the Davidic reign. And in that way, the parable continues to follow exactly that story because the owner sends the son. Right? Da, da, da. Judgment day. For those of you who, I mean, there's only a, I mean, uh, well, there's a, a couple psalms that are very, very central, quoted often in the New Testament. One of those is Psalms, Psalm 2. And um, listen to this verse here. This is Psalm 2, 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Who does this sound like in the parable? Against the Lord and against his anointed. That would have been, it says, you are my son in Psalm 2. Saying, let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords for us. Come, let us kill the son and that his inheritance may be ours. Nobody would have missed that allusion there. And it says later in Psalm 2, which again, everybody understood as a Messianic Psalm, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament, it's the most quoted verses in the New Testament, the Lord said unto my Lord. In verse 5 of that Psalm, it says, the Lord is at his right hand, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So if you're Israel at this point, if you're listening to Jesus tell this parable, you know how this is going to go. The prophets have been sent. They've been mistreated. The son has now been sent to the vineyard. But as Jesus tells the parable, the son who goes from the owner, who very obviously would have been the Messiah, before you can blink, is killed and thrown out of the vineyard. Before it seems like the battle ever actually even got going, the Messiah it seems to have lost it. The owner does eventually wipe out the wicked tenants, but by then it's too late. And strangely, the owner then puts another band of tenants back in charge of this vineyard. The end. I mean, this parable is so tragic, at least if you're listening to this in the lens of Scripture, that it's almost comical. You end up in the very same place at the end of the parable that you were in at the beginning with the vineyard, or Israel, still under charge of tenants, and the owner somewhere else. Jesus' audience doesn't miss the horror of the parable that he told them. They say, may it never come to pass, may it never be. Reminds you of Peter's statement, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And that's where Jesus quotes Psalm 118. I would venture you probably know more of it than you think you do. This is the stone that the builders rejected, but it has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The people who would have been listening to this psalm, the reason Psalm 118 would have been so important is precisely because it was taken again to be a psalm of indicating the moment, the day, which is what follows that, where it says, uh, this is the Lord's doing is marvelous in our eyes, if you've ever heard the phrase, this is the, this is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. That verse follows exactly that phrase. This is the day that the Lord has made, the day that the Lord makes the stone, now the cornerstone, which is the day that Israel would have been vindicated the day the Messiah arrived. As Jesus tells us, he shows them that that psalm is not just about Israel's vindication or about its uh, apparent loss, defeat, 
back to the Lord vindicating it. It's also about the Messiah himself. There's a mystery and a paradox of salvation here Jesus unveils in its apparent, in the moment of apparent total defeat and loss. You see where, again, you kind of have the world creation, which is intensified to Israel, which is intensified to the Messiah, who brings salvation. What Jesus here is showing in this parable, and as he quotes Psalm 118, is that likewise, it wasn't just the world that he's fighting against. It wasn't even just the leaders of the people, which was the mistake. Well, if we can just get rid of the tenants, what Jesus shows is it's really about the one that he confronts at the very beginning of his ministry, at the very end, the one who is in the world, the one who is driving sin and death, the one who has opposed God from the very beginning. The, the battle that Jesus is fighting here, which isn't seen with the tenants, is, is that it's not ultimately against flesh and blood. Jesus here is to win back all of creation and so to free it from the spiritual forces of darkness that hold it captive. And fighting just a group of tenants wouldn't have been able to accomplish that. So Jesus then couples that quotation of Psalm 118 with this last line, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Surprise, surprise, this is an allusion to Isaiah 8, where it talks about in between, you'd all know again verses from Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, but here's a moment when a pen, there is... Uh, <laughs> perhaps impending disaster. I, um, Judah, Jerusalem is being surrounded by its enemies. And the anticipation is, is that the circumstances look extraordinarily dire. The Lord here, it seems like, has been unfaithful. Jerusalem's going to fall, be captured. Everyone's going to become spoil of uh, their enemies. And it says that on that day, the Lord will become a sanctuary, those that trust in him, and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken. The image there that's in Isaiah 8 is almost as though the people, as they saw all the enemies hemming them in, closing in, encircling Jerusalem, is that they would try to escape out of Jerusalem, find some other means of salvation, something to deliver them. And as they were running, they would trip over the very stone that would have been a refuge to them. And I think, as you guys have seen here, partly drawing on, if you've seen the... Um, the ascent of Ajumim, which I showed you before, which is the way up to Jerusalem. It was very treacherous in and around Jerusalem to trip over a stone because you could fall down a ravine and you'd be broken to pieces. Partly what Isaiah is getting at there, which is what Jesus is drawing out, is that there is this fundamental distrust of God that ultimately can break us apart. Likewise, I know the women's Bible study here has been working through the prophet Daniel and there's something really significant in Daniel, I believe, again, that people would have heard as Jesus told that line. It's when Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, and he has this dream of these four successive kingdoms, a head of gold, a silver chest, uh, legs of bronze, and then legs of iron and partly clay. And it says that as Daniel sees that this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and he's interpreting it, he says, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet, iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain 
and it filled the whole earth. See, this is Jesus here at his very best as he tells this parable. That the son, when he is killed and defeated in this parable, seemingly the rejected stone of Israel, has become now in his very rejection, the stumbling stone of the Lord himself of Isaiah 8. Stumbling and tripping up those who would fail to trust in him, but also those faithless powers that had rebelled against God. That Jesus becomes the stone that crushes the forces of this world that meant to usurp God's power. What Jesus shows here, which is always what he does so masterfully and wonderfully, is what seemed like it had been the failure of Psalm 2 and 110, of the Messiah to do the very thing that had been promised, now actually becomes its fulfillment and its completion when you see it in light of Isaiah 8 and Daniel 2. As I was reflecting on this parable Jesus tells here, I think what I realized is that this parable is not just told against the political, social, or even religious leaders of that day. But when I listen carefully to it, it's also told against my own ego and pride. In this parable, the grievous sin that the tenants are, uh, they, they commit is this repeated refusal to be able to give to God what is God's. Namely, to be able to bear the fruit in our lives of his goodness, his beauty, his joy, his love, his peace. And I feel like when I find myself thinking about this parable and think about those tenants, it doesn't actually say, we don't know, whether those tenants were excellent gardeners, whether they were wonderful members of their community, family, people. Maybe they worshipped all the time. But there's something about that, and maybe with myself too, I can think of this vineyard that God has given me that I'm tending on my own terms, in my own way. And perhaps just like would have been at that time, I think, well, God, I'm managing this precisely the way that you would, you would have wanted or desired me to. But God wants more than just good management from me. More than just me to live the sort of life that I think maybe God desires of me. When the sun comes, he looks for that fruit. He ultimately looks for all of me, for all of you. He has the audacity to ask for the abundance, right? The excess of and from my life. And maybe what I realize is that the invitation here, as Jesus tells this parable, the invitation to repent isn't just to make a slightly better version of me, which maybe at times during seasons like this I can think because I'm trying to work out this discipline in my life so that Um, God may be more present and made manifest in my life. But those things are not just a transaction. I'm trying to say, okay, God, I'm going to work a little harder now. You can work a little harder. They're the signs of this whole and complete giving of myself, the surrender of all of me to the undeserved grace of God. And maybe the truth that Jesus tells here as he spells out that last line is that there's just something about our world that if we don't ultimately have that sense of dependence, that willingness to offer all of us, even the excess of our lives, up to God, we eventually run over the stumbling stone and break apart or are crushed to dust. See, maybe the tenants and myself will think in our lives in this season of time when there's a harvest, when there's abundance, I am king of my life and king 
of the world, but inevitably, right, we all run into those moments in our lives where there is a crushing, where there is a pressing. And maybe the repentance here really looks like being able to receive those moments, even here, even now. I can't help but think of Psalm 51. It says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And maybe Jesus here is unveiling another great mystery and paradox. That to find ourselves in that breaking place is exactly where God does that work of redemption and salvation. Pastor Jeff had sort of so wonderfully, I'm sure you heard it in the, in the songs that we sang this morning, but um, those words that Paul gives us in his own life, where he becomes such a wonderful example of giving up all that which he had considered as gain, of allowing the whole harvest to go to God if only he could be close to Christ. I think this is the invitation this morning that we're given. That wonderful passage again from I, who else, what other prophet but Isaiah, to have our lives cleared of those things that we might want to cling to so that God can actually bring about the restoration that God desires in our lives. This morning, the scripture passages and the season that we find ourselves in invite us to this wholehearted place of repentance, of being able to receive the breaking and being broken that so often accompanies our lives. It's an invitation, I think, ultimately to offer all that we have up to God, both out of our abundance and out of our sense of poverty, our broken, and our broken, our broken spirit and our broken and our contrite heart. And the gift of this table, its wonder, is, is that we come to a Lord who has already shown us the way and selflessly offering his broken body and shed blood for us. So I invite you this morning to come to the table, to let go of those things that could so easily, at least for me, feel like I'm trying to manage the kingdom, allow the Lord to do the work in us and in our spirit to do that new thing through the breaking, the crushing, and the pressing that we have. Shall we pray together? Lord our God, we're grateful this morning for the words of your son, for the example of Paul himself, for the prophesy, for the prophesying of Isaiah. To know, Lord, that as you speak those words, you invite us to a place of repentance. It's not that we might be condemned, but so that we might be found in you, and being found in you, we might attain to new life and to your righteousness. Allow us, Lord, to come before you humbled, contrite for those ways in which I've tried to be a tenant managing my own vineyard, and simply to offer all that you have given to me so that you might renew us. Pray this all in your son's name.